This episode of our This Week in XR podcast is sponsored by Zapper. Zapper is one of the world's leading XR companies. Over the past 12 years, they've won numerous awards for memorable campaigns. They've democratized AR by making tools and SDKs that anyone can use. And they created Zapbox, the world's most affordable mixed reality headset. Most recently, Zapper worked with Unilever to create an enhanced QR code called Accessible QR, which enables packaged goods to speak to the blind and partially sighted. If you're thinking XR, give the team at Zapper a call or visit Zapper.com to see how they can help you on your XR journey. Good morning, everybody. I'm Charlie Fink with Ted Chilowitz and Roni Abovitz for This Week in XR. It's August 18th, 2023. Good morning, guys. Good morning. How are you? Morning. I am great. Great. We have a great show. Our guest is Walter Parks. Yeah. Walter is probably the man in Hollywood I admire the most. He's a writer, but mostly he's a producer. He's responsible for movies like Men in Black and Gladiator. And then he makes this like right turn and opens a VR place called Dreamscape. Sure. And yeah, I've known have... Walter for a long time. We've... Yeah. Oh, my God. So I can't wait to talk to this guy. We are all so lucky. Um, we're... And Charlie, just uh, just in our never-ending quest for good audio for our listeners, I think you, your mic is actually working a little too good right now. You can back oh. up about oh, half okay. a click. Okay, you thank you. They so you don't overmodulate. For, for those of you on audio, which is pretty much everybody, um, we're trying to up our audio game. We we heard you. Uh, so, uh, you know, I have a boom microphone now. I'm, I just am not exactly sure. Yeah, I think you can go back <laughs> another six inches and it'll be perfect. There you go. Try that. All right. Yeah. Okay, great. That's it. Magic. So late news week. Fortunately, we can get to Walter right away as soon as he pops into the green room. Uh, by the way, for those of you who want to pick up, I don't know, 15 or 20 bucks from Facebook, uh, this is your last week to opt into the group settlement on privacy violations around the 2016 election. So uh, I'll put that link uh, up in my column today, which is running a little late because school started yesterday at uh, the ASU. Sure. graduate Back school to shout Back out to, to my students days. shout out to my students who are listening i love uh having graduate students they have all chosen to be there and they are leaning in uh and they are adults it's a very different experience teaching undergrads so uh anyway let's let's get to the first few news items i am wearing again i have to describe it for everybody who's <laughs> listening i am wearing my mma zuck v musk uh, T-shirt probably for the last time as um, Musk just would not stop taunting Mark uh, on on the X, uh, in in was actually suggesting that he was going to stop by and fight with um, fight with Zuckerberg in the octagon he has in his backyard apparently. And, so. and of course, Charlie, the uh, as we were talking, you know, because of my sort of bent in Hollywood and thinking everything through the lens of we should make a movie about this. Uh, we were talking before, so how much fun would it be to have Mike Myers, not the Mike Myers of Halloween, but the Mike Myers of Austin Powers fame, make a Zuckerberg versus Musk movie where Mike Myers plays both parts. And there's got to be a mini Zuck and a, and a mini Elon, <laughs> right? So, you know, it's just, just you can imagine how great that would be. The or great, the South Park guys, right? Matt and Troy. Or the South Park would, guys. Could they would just go and, to and town on this. And, yeah. and they may yet. Yeah, and they, they may probably uh, already are. Please, please, we need it. <laughs> Casey Newton uh, 
you guys probably know as a tech columnist, uh, wrote a piece where he said Musk's level of unhingedness, given his importance and the size and purpose of his companies, is pretty concerning. I mean, this is the richest man in the world or the third richest man in the world who is acting essentially like a 17-year-old. Yeah, that's why it just feels like Dr. Evil. Like it, it, I could see him with the little pinky, you know, it, it, there's no, just no. something really fascinating about it. From a wait, story wait, let, let me let me come in off the ropes on this. Um, I've been in interesting discussions with with like. I guess let's just call it U.S. government right around technology. And a few years back, there was like a lot of respect for Musk. And if you look at what SpaceX, let's focus on them, what they're doing, the amount of satellites they put in the air, the amount of satellites they put in for DOD, the kind of people the United States has worked with in the past in our country have never been like this. Mm-hmm. You had statesmen, you had like Walt Disney, you had people that like created, you had like Kelly Johnson, you know, who like created Skunk Works. That's who we're used to working with. And for a while, Elon was that. Like he was like a Kelly Johnson. He really was becoming one of those statesmen. And then those people don't do this other part. That's the part when you think how much of our national security, how much of what we're doing is actually dependent on someone who's like, has a couple like, you know, like a couple sheets south of the wind. I don't know how to describe it. Uh, it is, yeah. you know, when you look at it from that perspective, it's really not funny anymore. No, it's not funny. Like if it was just like, by the way, you put your life into the hands of an automated AI Tesla. A lot of people do believing in the infallibility of like Elon's team. Um, the, the government and, and many companies put their put their belief in space. And by the way, SpaceX teams, these are great teams, right? If you talk to the engineers there, they probably don't understand what's going on. They're yeah, I would not be used to this. Yeah, I would be a little scared if I was also <laughs> actually I know a guy who just turned down a job with them. Uh, because, you know, he could just decide not to pay you and say, come sue me. I mean, he's got kind of a Trumpian aspect that, again, you know, makes people don't want to work for him. But, but Charlie, can I just add one last thing on this? Um, I've managed a lot of engineers, thousands of engineers at Mako Magic Leap over the years. And look, you, you have a certain kind of tech personality, which is genius on one part. And I, and I, and I posted this. The other part's an 11-year-old boy. Right. There's a there's an immaturity baked in that has not grown up. And I think you're actually seeing it in both guys right now. Like this is the kind of stuff I'm sure Ted did this. I did this. You did, we're 11, 12. You're back to the schoolyard. Someone picked on you in class. You're going to fight it out. And everyone's in a circle cheering. And that's like, you know, stand by me. You know, that's like stuff you did when you were growing up. But do you still do that, you know, in your 40s and 50s? I don't know. I, I no, wish he was I wish he was dreaming up another SpaceX. Yeah, we do parts of it, but I don't think we do it, you know, nearly to the to the level of, well, number one, the accomplishments that he's created, the dichotomy of the accomplishments and the weird behavior is just yeah. hard to grapple with. There's a there's a really interesting, insightful moment years ago. Um, this is way, way before Tesla, when he was making a lot of money in PayPal and, and all that stuff. 
he took delivery of his first McLaren, his first supercar. And there's some YouTube video out there, like a local news story captured, like Silicon Valley billionaire takes delivery of the most exotic supercar in the world. And you can sort of see a glimmer of who the real guy is there. Like as he's pulling the car off the trailer and it's scraping and it's, and you're just kind of like, well, that's interesting. You know, it's, there's a, there's something very illuminating about watching that video to kind of know what's going on inside his mind. Um, and me as a, you know, as a, as a legit fan and, um, driver of multiple Teslas and a believer in the technology, I also constantly question uh, my level of faith in it and don't take the overall leap to go to full autonomous all the time. I use it sparingly in where I feel like there are safe conditions. And I think that's the that's the well, right approach to it. Chad, you and I know this, like genius comes with a cost. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're a self-aware one of those you you need to surround yourself with people that offer a buffer between you and the organization often between you and the world or you end up in a howard hughes situation yeah which may be what we're looking at toward right that now. a little bit yeah yeah, yeah. You, you need yeah. a buffer you need that buffer around you and i think you can look at bill gates and, and steve jobs as a different type of that personality that had those eccentricities but it's interesting to see how bill gates has matured into someone who's really focused on things that are what he believes and many other people believe are really good approaches to help the planet in various ways and help humanity in various ways. So he took that creative energy, that sort of oddball Dr. Evil energy and somehow channeled it into a more positive vein. I guess we have to just keep an eye on our friend Elon and see what yeah. happens. He's, I mean, because he comes across as not, a, <clears throat> excuse me, as not a serious person. Hmm. But so here's that, the that SpaceX is, is an awfully serious company that does really serious things, very high stakes. So. I mean, right, but the other sure. part of him, but no, but here's the thing: he's incredibly serious and competent in these other areas, right? Like, he, like it, when when he switches on to serious mode, he's full, you know, genius level strategist, thinking about things. So there's this weird, you know, uh, Ted, you told me this one time ago, and this may be part of what he's thinking. The the you said the bag of rats that someone's yeah. shaking. Yeah, I mean, he could be doing this deliberately, like pretending to be the drunken master and doing all that crazy while over mm -hmm. here, he's totally <laughs> serious. And this is all an act. I mean, you, you're the one yeah. who told that to me. The, the, yeah, the yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's yeah. a thesis around, you know, unfortunately, yeah. it's a thesis around dictators uh, yes. that the goal to, to, to keep the population under control is to keep them on tilt. So the, the, the metaphor, the visual metaphor is imagine your population inside a burlap bag, like a bag of rats, and you're constantly shaking the bag so no one can ever feel where they're upright or, or upside down. And that's a little bit what, you know, people like this do. But at the same that's time, there's a crazy dichotomy of everything he accomplishes, which is does so much good for so many people until it sort of goes off the rails. So we, you know, and it's like the, for the three of us, if we need to blow off steam, we would go out and grab a beer together for him. He goes and buys Twitter and then does, goes crazy. <laughs> and tries him. to get out of it, tries to get out of it before he says yeah, he's going so to use it. That's his version of buying a couple of beers. <laughs> All know. right. Walter is here. Excellent. We had such a good conversation with Zach last week. Yeah, I got a lot of good comments. If, if, if the great. listeners haven't listened to last week's episode, uh, Zach was really illuminating, a lot of fun. We definitely want to have him back on the show. Um, so listen to last week's episode. Uh, that will hopefully lead into a good episode this week as well. Yeah. Now you're yeah. setting Walter's a bar terrific. here, right? Setting oh, a yeah. bar for Walter. Yeah. Absolutely. There he is. Walter is one of the world's most interesting men. And he, and he doesn't stop. He's relentless. This guy... 
there's when you get to know him it is no wonder that he has had this kind of success walter good to see you hi ted how are you you. nice to see you i'm great i'm great good to see you it's been a while yeah hi charlie hey how are you thank you so much for joining us walter my pleasure We've been trying to make this happen probably for the better part of a year. <laughs> well, we've done it. We should, we've we, done it. Raise the flag and claim victory. So I praised you lavishly before uh, we brought you on as we were uh, hyping the show at the top. So uh, I will forego uh, your resume right now. Uh, mm. But I do want to talk about the movie part for a second because yeah. – and and I don't disparage – immersive media when i say that as part of it but the scale and the importance of the movies you made you know are cultural milestones you mean you know movies like men in black movies like gladiator which is a very very serious movie war games oh yeah Yeah. you guys didn't like holy cow war games Are, are, are you kidding yeah, I think the first time I met Walter in person, so on, on the disclosure part of our podcast here, when I was at Fox, he and I were doing a lot of stuff together, and we made an investment in uh, Dreamscape, and, and we're very, very close in the very, very early days of the incubation and early, early stages, so Walter may want to reflect on that, but I remember the first time I met Walter and told him about my absolute massive crush on Ali Sheedy uh, <laughs> from War Games, and I know it is not an uncommon phenomenon, uh, so Walter Maybe maybe talk about all the people in your life that have told you about how meaningful War Games was to their. Hey, hey their Ted, career. you're live on on broadcast, and, and Allie can probably hear this, she and she's still around, so she could find you. Right? <laughs> oh yeah, she's listening to our nerd podcast. <laughs> you never you know. know. The War Games continues to have these waves of relevance. You know, it, it it's interesting with with right around Y2K and when the whole idea of computer security became much more sort of visible and discussed, suddenly their conversation about that, obviously with, you know, issues of nuclear arms race and certainly now with AI, it's just an interesting for, for me and for my writing partner, Larry Lasker, it's kind of been the gift that keeps on giving Uh, for what reason it just sort of hangs into the culture. Um, Really just because I think we took the right approach on writing it, which is we started with a character premise and then we did a whole bunch of research into things like, you know, the growing personal computer industry and what would really smart kids do and, you know, if they were detached from their family. And that led us to all sorts of things about the the military and about uh, computerized defense, which led us to AI. So it was really as much just keeping our ear to the ground and finding a good vehicle for it. But it, it certainly is keeps on coming back. Well, that that classic line, the only way to win is not to play, for anyone that has watched the movie <laughs> and knows how important that is, can be extraordinarily important at every technological movement that we all see and we have all seen you know, for as long as our, our adult lives and even our children's lives have, have been around, that there's these moments and now we have this massive one with all things around generative AI. Yeah. And there's that little thing in the back of your head that says, the only way to win this is not to play. So be careful. <laughs> Right. So, you know, it's going to where Charlie started with. Strangely enough, the original ad line for War Games was, is it a game or is it real? Mm -hmm. So when you think about this odd arc of my career, that that was the first screenplay I wrote and I've sort of ended up in the world of is it a game or is it real? It, It makes a certain sense in retrospect. 
So well, Walter, that your movie was like everyone in my generation grew up watching it. All my friends were hackers. We wanted it was like kind of an instruction manual and a cautionary tale. Mm. But it's almost impossible for me to imagine that without war games and like 2001, the kind of AI we see today would exist. Because effectively, some people have gone and built Whopper. Mm. Like if you think about mm -hmm. what's happening at OpenAI, they watched that movie and said, let's go build that. They didn't listen to the last part. Let's go make that real. Yeah. Um, it's it's very interesting how many people took away the caution and how many people just wanted to build the thing and were excited about the idea of this like sentient AI that that appeared in your film. It's it's sort of a very interesting, it cut both ways. And, and I know it cut both ways for me. It was very, you know, I was I was one of those hackers at that time. That makes me think of two things. There's a, a line that was not in the current splendid Oppenheimer movie uh, that we used to refer to. I think Oppenheimer once uh, in his testimony said about technologists, if you come across something that's technically sweet, you do it and you worry about the consequences of doing it later. Yeah. So I think certainly so we're true. at the moment right now. Yes. I think the other th moment that you're referring to is that, you know, technological evolution has sort of overtaken human evolution, right? So we're not all that well equipped to understand the complexity of our world. So more than ever, narratives about that complexity become sort of the currency of the realm. So it's gonna open up every door. It's going to lead to our destruction. Y2K, everything's going to be wiped out. These are kind of simplistic ways of understanding this, something that's really, really complex. And, you know, probably the most overused word in, in, in the culture in the last 10 years has been narrative. But there's sort of a reason because those narratives and stories are ways that we kind of make sense of things that are bigger, bigger than us. And we're sort of heading that way right now. So, Walter, before we jump into our conversation about your move into immersive media, I I, I want to ask you a question about the movies I have never had the opportunity uh, to do. But the movies, I, I just I'm looking at your filmography as we're talking, and um, you know they're just they they range from ridiculous comedies to extremely serious movies like The Kite Runner, and so. I'm just wondering, which are your favorites? Like, can we get like a top three? I'm just so <laughs> curious. I mean, you, you've had a life in movies that I'm not sure many other people have. Well, it's beyond kind. And we've been very, very, very lucky. Um, I mean, for one thing, we made movies at a time when you could make that range of movies and be successful with them. Uh, I, I'm going to answer you, but I, I sometimes point out that Back at, at DreamWorks, we had the great fortune of having three consecutive best pictures. And they were American Beauty, Gladiator, Beautiful Mind. American Beauty, no studio would make now. Yeah. A Beautiful Mind, no studio would make now. <laughs> and Gladiator, as an uh, sort of a, a, you know, not a well-known title, it's iffy if it would be made now. And at the time, Russell wasn't a star. So that just told, tells you that it was before we were all renting space in the Marvel Universe that there was a, a, a much wider swath of pictures that, if done responsibly, could be successful. So we were very fortunate to be sort of working at that time. And obviously, it's not the worst thing to have the names of Spielberg and Geffen and, and Katzberg <laughs> part of our career. I mean, there, there's been stuff before that and after that. But anyway, you know, I'd have to say that 
Gladiator is at the top of the list, both in terms of a, a movie I love and a an experience I loved. Um, it 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 just was a sort of a brawny filmmaking because of so many things having become digital now doesn't exist much anymore. I mean, we we built a lot of that Coliseum. You know, there was a lot of actual giant production going on there. It takes Ridley Scott to be able to do that, and because. Uh, we were both running the studio involved in the movie. There was a sort of an intimacy with the relationship. Uh, I, I love the first Men in Black. Um, I just think, you know, what is just one of those things where concept and tone and, you know, when we hired Will, he was not yet a merchant. I think that uh, uh, Independence Day came out while we were shooting and suddenly you would just see lines you know crowds where we were were uh, where we'd be in production on location um and barry sonnenfeld just hit a tone with that that was just singular and right for the moment and um oddly enough for me catch me if you can is is another top one yeah i love that movie too it's great storytelling it's so compelling yeah and and you know it was so interesting i remember that that movie was shot in a way that almost reflected the story itself. Um, Stephen did it on a very low budget, and we were running just like the movie is about a guy's running. We'd yeah. run. We'd often change locations midday. I just remember talking to Lori, my 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 partner and wife, watching Stephen be able to do that. This man you associate with these enormous, you know, special effects and whatever, just to see him on the floor as a pure director. I remember just saying to, to Lloyd, just isn't fair. I mean, right. just how, how the, just the competency level beyond the, uh, the extraordinary, you know, humanity and talent behind it. But I, I, I found something about the toughness of that movie just really stays with me. So those, those would be three I, I, I really love. And I'd have to then say War Games and Sneakers just because Larry and I were so involved in it. And we did feel that we were at the beginning of something new here, that this idea of a tech thriller and bringing that kind of technology to a wide audience was really exciting. And I have to say, we did feel it at the time. Yeah, I think those movies all really defined a generation of audiences and their shared stories and the things that they talked about. So I think it's absolutely stuff to to admire and be proud of. It's fascinating. Well, um, I also think, by the way, uh, with Catch Me As You Can, Catch Me If You Can, the production design still sticks mm. in my head. It was so unbelievably accurate of that period of time. The wardrobe, the airplanes, the the airplane terminals, the tarmacs, the everything was so unbelievably perfect that it's still it feels like reality because the production design was so accurate. I see Charlie kind of smiling and nodding his head because he agrees. So Ted, next time you fly to New York, fly in JetBlue and walk across the way to I've done the it. terminal, and you'll see the the Lincoln Continental that Leo drove up with with yes. a bunch of stewardesses. We had the great, great opportunity of basically just owning that as we shot there for several weeks. So that amazing piece of architecture was our set, was our studio yeah. for weeks. Yeah. So and now they've turned it into a hotel, so you can actually yeah, see yeah, there. But, it's, and, but if, yeah. for a lover of design, it's a really interesting visit. Totally agree. Great. Fascinating discussion. Charlie, I know we want to get into the, the stuff we're, we're supposed to talk about all the time, which is now we're moving into a new vein of entertainment. And Walter, you've been a pioneer in that as well. And have a lot of probably stories of the upside down, the sideways, the moving forward. And there's still 
you know, success points that you have creating the idea of where does entertainment go beyond a, a traditional screen, right? So I think, um, Charlie, you may have more to add to get the lead in there, but I think that's kind of what we want to talk about next, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, I met uh, Walter through uh, a friend, Kevin Wall, uh, with whom he had kind of discovered. Let me tell the dreamscape story really quickly to get some context. So uh, they found this company, Artemima, in Switzerland that had created a free roam VR system, uh, not unlike some others that other companies were doing, but but more elegant. And I went to their office. Uh, I had just started writing for Forbes. So this is going to be mid-2017. And Walter himself gave me the demo. And the demo, it was the most compelling VR experience, one of the most compelling VR experiences I ever had. And I walked out of there and I thought to myself, if Walter Parks, instead of making movies, is doing this, it is going to be huge. Like, forget about what I think. You could not find somebody whose perspective would be more important to me. So uh, that day and that experience at, of meeting you for the first time uh, is one of the gifts I have gotten from coming back to tech and writing about this medium. So, uh, and then when they did Alien Zoo, their first experience, uh, it's like being inside of a movie. It's like being inside of a Disney movie. It is a theme park no, Disney, I take that back. Disney doesn't have anything like DreamWorks. They wish they did. They can't do it because there's no throughput. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an intent. DreamWorks, but yeah. It, it, yeah. Yeah, Dreamscape, sorry. Um, and uh, and they made a deal with AMC, the movie uh, company, to kind of syndicate their, a location-based, a themed location-based entertainment center that would have multiple experiences. And they achieved all that. Their experiences really are the best but the pandemic hit, which everybody knows really hurt location-based entertainment, although it is coming back uh, in many venues, not all. But the company during the pandemic made an important pivot toward education and defense. Uh, I think there are a number of motivations behind that, but it was a very smart thing. A number of companies, we were talking about Hologate two weeks ago, uh, they pivoted and and that saved their company, really. So. Uh, after the pandemic now, Dreamscape is in bed with uh, working with Michael Crow and ASU to create a center around their experience, Alien Zoo, that treats it as sort of you do biology and you do discovery inside of that virtual world that they built. And uh, of course, I don't know much about the defense business, but uh, super interesting that Dreamscape strategically is interested in that. And I think it's such a great hedge, right? Because we all know the volatility in location-based entertainment, the difficulty of real estate, the problems with utilization. Um, and this can make Dreamscape the company that it should be uh, and can be without being dependent on whether or not the retail part of it is is as important as we initially thought, but that's what a startup is. You pivot to find the right business model or calibrate your business model to uh, the world and what's available. So uh, is that, do you think an accurate telling of the dreamscape story? Uh, better than I could. That's it, it, spot on Charlie. The, um, I think that the only thing I would add or revise is, I'm, it's oddly enough, wasn't quite a pivot because we began 
sort of a, a serious push in education right before the pandemic, which was just a very fortunate thing. We, we, we had this great moment. So you talked about Alien Zoo. Um, and for your listeners that may not know what that is, our, the very first dream, Dreamscape uh, experience was something actually based on an idea that uh, uh, Steven Spielberg and I had tried to do as a movie at, at, at uh, DreamWorks. Uh, that posits the existence of a uh, space-based sanctuary for the endangered species of the galaxy. It's silent so we, running. Uh, I'm sorry? Silent yeah. running. I, I love that you have that as a reference. Um, <laughs> it's so, um, and we created sort of a Jurassic Park-like experience and uh, Michael Crow, who you mentioned, who's the president of ASU, uh, an extraordinary man and an extraordinary place. Michael Crow pretty much single-handedly has turned ASU from what we all remember it to be the best party school in the nation to the largest university in the country. And now for eight years running the most innovative above MIT in uh, Stanford. Uh, he, he's an absolutely extraordinary man, really an educational visionary. And he walked out of a a Alien Zoo and looked at me and said, you do know you have a whole new way of teaching here. And he went into a whole conversation about we've been teaching science in a way that doesn't work for 75% of the kids that try to understand it. Their brains just don't work that way because they don't engage with it. And he saw the potential of literally reinventing how science education is taught uh, through that property and through our platform. So that was a something that was exciting us even pre-pandemic and that absolutely then accelerated during the pandemic when you're absolutely right um you know like any location-based or customer-facing business was very very challenging absolutely well you take on the problems that retail has so you know it's not just you're not in the context of of an entertainment destination you're in the context of an upscale mall that's right. The the original value proposition really was, and think about it, you know, in 2018, 2019, malls are losing their customers to the internet, to online. So to get people to the mall, they needed to have, you know, more significant sorts of, uh, you know, eating and entertainment options. Um, and we were seen correctly as a draw in that way. I mean, our research was extraordinary in that regard. post pandemic pandemic, what you're seeing, whether it's the mall business or AMC or Warner Brothers or whatever, is a retrenchment to these big companies' core businesses, right? I mean, you, so so just in terms of AMC, for example, I mean, it, it, it is not a time when those companies could put a, a lot of money into emerging ancillary businesses when they're having to shore up what their core uh, businesses are. But luckily, What's happened with Dreamscape Learn is that it, it's sort of taken off in such a way that it's allowing us sort of the 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 sort of the bandwidth right now to kind of look at the LBE business through the lens of our experience. And I think that will have to do with two things, rethinking our, our tech stack a little bit that allows it to be more scalable at a better price and allow, you know, better throughput. And then number two, because Dreamscape was 
always, and Charlie, you've always been such an incredible supporter of us. I mean, I've used your quote more than once, as you know. Um, uh, it is a premium experience, and I think it will more likely not exist as a standalone, but rather as a part of a larger kind of immersive entertainment environment. So luckily, we have partners and relationships that are allowing us to really move in those two directions of tech simplification and looking at a different sort of business model while we are building uh, uh, the education business. Rony, so, do you have a couple Walter, of things? I have a few things I want to ask go. Walter, but I don't, I want to let you just, dive into the conversation. Kind of one big question for Walter, like, do you see like, um, maybe looking at something like the Apple Vision Pro, its level of quality and audio as a, maybe a marker where you could consider the idea of immersive experiences, like your original concept of Dreamscape, like amazing immersive experiences. Now that you might have 4K or 6K per eye, great spatial audio. Do you think that we're entering another phase where it might be worth doing that again? I, well, I understand all the pivots. But we are doing that again. But I think that that you need to almost go the opposite direction in terms of price point. I mean, I think mm -hmm. I haven't tried the the, the Apple, but I, I, everyone says it's absolutely extraordinary extraordinary, which will allow you to bring, have extraordinary things, uh, experiences at home. I think that if you're going to bring people and to buy a ticket for something and ask to offer something bigger, and it has to be scalable. So right there, if you have a, what is it, 13 or $1,500 price point, and it's also, it's not really being built for enterprise use. It's really being built for home use. I'm not sure that is the way LBE will go back to thriving. I mean, we, were, we really were sort of thriving before the pandemic. And I think if we come back, we need to utilize other innovations. Uh, Charlie, you know this because I think we've talked about it. When Dreamscape began, the only way you could track someone and render them as a human. And to me, that was the breakthrough about what I saw in Geneva. Uh, I, I was a late proponent of, of VR, a late uh, adopter of it. Mostly because I didn't like to be alone. I didn't like being tethered to hand controllers and I didn't like not having a body. What I saw in Geneva changed all that, but it required you bicon motion capture cameras uh, and it wasn't a simple system. Well, now with whether it's a Focus 3 or an Oculus, we have inside out tracking so that the headset alone can track hands and the position of your head aren't our new SDK, our new platform allows us to basically render the entire body just through those three points of information, which takes away all of the superstructure of the Vicon system, et cetera, et cetera, much cheaper, much more scalable. So I think, uh, honestly, Ronnie, I think that the, the, it, it has to go toward those sorts of choices of scalability. Uh, honestly, we never really had an issue with the, you know, level of resolution or the quality or anything like that. It, the, the challenge, as as um, Charlie says, really has to do with throughput. I guess, well, last, last thing, Walter, I, I think if Mark Zuckerberg is listening, he's going to be excited to hear what you just said, and Tim Cook will not be excited. He's, he's, uh, he's <laughs> like a $3,500. Yeah. No, no, Tim's like $3,500 price point, and Mark is like, yes. I'm going to sell these at a loss under a thousand bucks, $500. So he's you're clearly reiterating, like maybe Mark's position from your perspective is the right one. It, well, it, it, it's certainly how, how we've looked at it. And the other way we've looked at it is that we have, from day one, we chose to be um, hardware agnostic. 
it's just impossible to keep up with the level of innovation. And then there's peaks and valleys. And a year ago, everything was the metaverse, and now everything's AI. And you know, you sort of have to keep your your your. your someone very smart said to me, "the the uh, plural of of focus is no focus." that you have to be very laser focused on where your value add is. And our value add is a, this, this platform, this medium of VR allows us to create experiences, whether for entertainment or for the military, or in this case for education, that really brings in a lot of different media. We use 2D and 3D and cinematic techniques and music and all sorts of things that generally are not orchestrated in VR experiences. Experiences and they can only be orchestrated in VR experiences um, where you're actually immersed in it. Um, so we're we're really aiming at the refinement of our particular platform. And the other thing is, and it's almost the question for you guys. I've noticed that no matter what, the focus on VR technology continues to be about the remote user at the home. And what we find, whether it was a Dreamscape Learn. A dreamscape or now dreamscape learn that the sense of community of being in a shared virtual space able to communicate and fully in touch with all of your senses is really exciting and important and 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 it, it's really a hallmark of our particular platform which is yes bringing in remote users essential but the idea of being able to create these environments that can be you know, uh, shared platforms for learning, education, collaboration really is the focus. And it seems that it's not a particular focus in terms of hardware manufacture. Yeah. So I, I want to drill into a lot of what you're just talking about in terms of the trajectory of virtual reality, right? And let me go a couple of steps back to what Charlie mentioned the first time he did the early prototype experience before you went into commercial release. Um, to draw people that are listening a visual experience of what it was like. Um, you put on these little trackers on your feet and your hands, and suddenly you had an actual full body that you could wave and see other people. So instantly you were in this communal experience, right? And that was amazing. And then you used other theme park techniques and trickery to start to fool that virtual body into believing that this is way more than just wearing a VR headset. You are now in a full theme park level simulation of an experience. So that first experience was sort of, I guess, like a moving platform. And the visuals were kind of literally right out of Blade Runner, right out of Ridley's brain <laughs> of seeing these incredible visuals. But you were moving, and the, the jiggling of the platform made you believe it. So let me let you comment on that first, and then I'm going to ask the next part of this question. Well, listen, it is all about, yeah, listen, uh, motion sickness is one of the great enemies of VR, right? And the, uh, uh, and um, what you try to do if you want to move people either through walking but particularly on vehicles is as you say is sort of uh, trick the central nervous system into thinking you're really moving so that can be very simple even uh, we, we've created something called the dreamscape immersive desk which is what students sit at and we just have a little fan built into it mm -hmm. i cannot tell you what the sensation of a little wind going mm -hmm. into your face when you're simulating forward movement does in terms of reality and also uh, protecting our users against uh, things like motion sickness right. so it was absolutely the whole point 
And I think the other thing you're hinting at there, because you rep you referred to Blade Runner, for example, we share a collective consciousness of movies, right? With a shared language, a shared sense of history, a shared sense of experience that can trigger things very quickly. Oh, that's just like. There, there's an adage that I used to use in the motion picture business, which was uh, the more exotic the journey, the more comfortable the chair. What I mean is that if you're going to take the audience into something very, very new, you better make sure that they feel oriented. George Lucas understood this perfectly by using, you know, the hero's journey as the backbone of uh, Star Wars. He made a Western that was a space movie. Exactly. exactly. So even though the, the world was strange, the kind of deep narrative structure was recognizable. Men in Black movies work best when they're cop movies. And I understand the conventions of a cop movies and someone shakes <laughs> down a stoolie. Well, in this case, it's a pug alien. But I don't understand that moment. So we consciously try to sort of honor and use the tropes of cinema inside of VR because it provides a more comfortable chair for the user. Yeah. Charlie, do you want to add something or you want me to keep uh, going here? I was just going to comment on that first uh, VR demo that Artemim did. Um, they played with scale in an extraordinary way yeah. that makes you feel like you're in a deep space. Yeah. So I, actually I just did the clockmakers forest, uh, which is the new experience based on trackers. So you can wear a quest and, you know, as you pointed out, it would create much better throughput. Oh and yeah. No, it, it's, it's backpackless and trackerless. Yeah. yeah, so it greatly, of course, reduces the cost of building a simulation center. Yes. I had a question about Dreamscape Learn because I'm having a, a, and you mentioned the fan. Are the students wearing headsets or is this a 3D virtual world accessed through a video screen like a console game? Headsets, headsets. But what's interesting is that we've also adapted it for a a 2D a 3D version on a 2D screen just like a video game it would be because again we want to be able to reach as many students as possible so there's a very premium version that takes place at a dreamscape learned center and it's been built at ASU we're now in the process of moving into universities across the country i mean we're in contract probably with oh, I don't know, our first six or seven of new partners. So there'll be this thing called a, an immersive learning center, which, you know, one might, one hopes, or at least we hope that in the same way that a library and a gymnasium and a student's store and a parking lot are common uh, aspects of all universities, that something called an immersive learning center will be one too, you know, a, a digitally uh, uh, powered center that can approach many uh, different sorts of subjects, which is what we're doing. We're now moving on to chemistry. But because, and this I think is important, because the other innovation of Dreamscape Learn is really embracing, as I was just mentioning, the power of narrative uh, and uh, you know emotional cinematic narrative because that's at the heart of it which is most beautifully rendered in in vr the 2d version of it is proving to be very very effective also because story is sort of universal right so whether it's done with a headset or if we did screens like you said or we put it on a 2d screen they won't all have equal level of immersion they won't be all equally premium but at some essential level they're all going to deliver 
for something because we may not all be storytellers, but we all know how to hear a story and we know how to respond to a story. And this has given us an opportunity to bring that into education via this emerging media. Yeah, so you know, it's all these areas that you're talking about are are shows in and of themselves. Like we could spend mm. an hour talking about each of these things. So <laughs> as we kind of progress down this journey of virtual reality, the other thing that I think is really important, something that you pioneered and others have pioneered as well, was the idea of haptics and tactical feel of objects in virtual yeah. reality, which is something that still today is a separation point between home VR, as you, you know, talked about the trajectory of the hardware manufacturers just really focusing on the visual experience and maybe a little bit of the audio experience, but forgetting the, the, the physical, you know, haptic body experience still is the bastion of, we got to get you out of the home or at least in a special environment, very exotic VR to do that. But one of the things you did when you migrated from your prototype stuff to the first commercial stuff, and for all our listeners, I was deeply involved with Walter on all this, um, was being able to connect the idea of seeing something in the headset and touching it with your hands or with parts of your body or having a, a mechanic inside the attraction do something to you that tricked you into the fact that it was really there. And that started to break that fourth wall that, okay, I, I get it, it's a simulation, but it's not really happening to me. The minute you touch a, a dinosaur's head and you feel it and it reacts and looks <laughs> at you, the, the next step of the process of the fooling of the simulation happens. So it was no surprise to me that you got Steven Spielberg involved very early on because he was always a fan of moving past the movie screen into this idea of an attraction at a place. So, you know, he took Jaws and made it one of the most popular attractions in a ride scenario and then yeah. did many other things, some that worked, some that didn't. The E.T. ride and the associated video game, uh, as like from Zach's uh, episode last week, good example of where it kind of went awry. But for the most part, he really understood that idea of building the perfect simulation that allowed haptics to be involved. Yes. You know, when a shark comes up to you in the water and the water sprays on you, it feels yeah. really real. What you were doing in VR is exceptional. That well, you, I'm so glad you noticed that. We rather pretentiously called it a dreamscape moment, but we've consciously <laughs> said early on in any given experience, you need to have that moment that you seal the deal with the audience where you break that fourth wall. And I accept I'm in a virtual world. Oh my Lord, this is physicalized. But here's the interesting thing. And this is what we've learned in education. Haptics can start with something very, very simple. And it, this goes back to why I think I was first attracted to the art and uh, technology. While it doesn't seem like a big thing now because of our new inside out headsets that are available, the idea that you could actually use your hands in a VR experience, that was pretty revolutionary. It that was, I could pick up a bat, at the time. Yes, or I could pick up something that was in fact a piece of PC, you know, PFC tubing, but it was being rendered as a torch and I could throw it to Kevin Wall and he could throw it back to me. <clears throat> These were mind blowing moments. So what we found is that it can be as simple as this. I see a desk, I'm sitting at a desk, I That's put the desk, my hands right. on a desk. Right. I can lean my head, put my elbow on the desk. It means everything. Absolutely. It means everything because at that moment, moment you're sort of completing the reality circuit okay i'm believing this world now i'm really believing this world with my hands on this object and the other thing i'm glad you noted one of you was saying i think people in vr realize 
almost don't realize the simple pleasures and almost jump past them. Uh, one of you guys were mentioning, we start all of our entertainment pieces with coming up with a virtual mirror where you can see yourself as an avatar mm -hmm. and you realize, oh my Lord, that's me. But wait a minute, it isn't me. But look, it's moving like me. And 60% of the time, people dance. They do a little <laughs> dance because they feel sort of liberated from self-consciousness and they're seeing that and their moves are sort of been somewhat abstracted. That too is one, a fundamental pleasure. So we try to sort of scaffold our experiences so that, oh, I'm in an amazing world. Oh, I can touch the world. Oh, I can see myself in the world. Now let's get going. As opposed to, you know, a potentially disorienting early launch into an experience. The so here's, here's my final question then, Charlie. You'll probably want to let you do the, do the wrap-up like we'll do here. But um, this gets to a more serious discussion point that I'm very curious about your take on it. One of the things that I've noticed that I'm sort of building a, a continual thesis on, and we, we'll talk about this, so it's not super public yet, but I want to kind of run it past you, is one of the challenges with the, the, the trajectory of this kind of out-of-the-home simulation entertainment experiences is the level of importance that the investment community and the operators have put on it and all the restrictions that we've been forced to do to kind of make it something that is ancillary to your mall experience. Like you're going to go to the mall and then you're going to go do this experience versus going to a theme park is the place where that is elevated and it is important. The idea of going on the rides and going on the experiences is the reason you go to the place. So the one-off, two-off sort of scenarios, I think, cause it to be a restrictive problem that doesn't allow it to fully flourish. Now we're seeing starting to crack the code with things like Meow Wolf and Area 15, where they're building an actual destination. It's not as big or you know, as, as blown in terms of the level of investment as a full-on theme park, but we're seeing that this is the reason people go to the place. And I'm curious, because DreamWorks Dreamscape is still quite successful in Century City as its flagship location. It's moving people through it all the time, but it is not often the reason you go, right? Um, and I'm curious if you have a take on that and where you think we need to progress this art form to get there. I, 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 I absolutely do, and I think you're absolutely right. I will say, pre-pandemic, we did a lot of research, and in, in, I'll give you an example. When we, we spoke, we, we did questionnaires with about 2,000 people for our Dallas location, why are you here? Are you here because you came for, why did you come for the mall for today? And 60% yeah. of our customers had come there for Dreamscape as opposed to we came here for a movie or we came here to shop or came here to dinner and we came to you guys. But because it's a small, you know, three three experiences and a small thing, you can't you can't count on that for an entire business. So I think you're completely right. I think that the future, one of the futures of this, and I kind of see it's high end and low end. I think there is a high end future in which we will be part of a premium, sort of the premium part of a large, offering of different kinds of digital experiences that becomes a destination in and of itself. And I think that is a very viable way of looking at it. And luckily we have, you know, terrific partners in the Middle East in particular who are helping us look at that possibility. And the other side is the sort of lower cost version of it where you can get through people you can scale and get people in and out so that you're not carrying the kind of uh financial burden or investment point of view burden that you're describing right. and 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 i think those are probably the two routes that that this 
this new form will succeed and it's certainly the two that we're continuing to explore and build toward. So we're coming up on the hour. Let me uh, add a couple of things to um, what Ted had to say about the immersive experience. The Void, which was your main competitor and unfortunately out of business, did an experience that really didn't get the recognition it deserved in my experience because it's the second favorite immersive free roam experience uh, based on the movie Ghostbusters. And the first thing that happens in there is that you reach for a doorknob in VR and it's real. Your hand yeah. touches the doorknob. And so you, Dreamscape became very proficient at that kind of um, uh, making sure that right away, like the mirror, you're on the platform in Alien Zoo. Not only is it vibrating, but you reach out and touch the rail and it's yeah. a real rail and you yeah. can hang on to it. And the tracking, because it's not, it's inside out, but because it's based on the sensor, the tracking mm -hmm. is perfect. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's maybe an issue with the um, uh, external cameras on the Quest yeah, 2. Yeah, they're perhaps. not quite as precise as the more expensive tool. No, it, absolutely. And that's why I say, I think there's the super premium version where things are tracked, et cetera, et cetera. Then there's a really interesting version. And our engineers are really working hard on helping the hand tracking in the educational world because that's a really important thing you have to act, manipulate uh, uh you know certain virtual uh, controls inside of our experiences it's interesting you, one last thing about haptics so as we have been moving from our old system to the inside out tracking we were talking about, well, should we just have virtual controls? And I was very, very insistent, no, we still have to have a joystick because that joystick itself is one of those connections between the physical world and the uh, and the virtual world. And, and I'm telling you, even creating a virtual thing where you feel like you're toggling something, but actually not holding something would not have the same sense of reality than actually giving someone a joystick. And we associate a joystick with certain things, flying an airplane, video games, we sit at movies. So these simple one-on-one -on -one connections between the virtual and the real world are essential. Walter, so thank here's, you. Here's what I would say for Charlie and Roni's and, and Walter's perspective. If we were going to have an award for XR pioneers, for really the folks that were pushing the boundaries. So, you know, it would be an award with like a, a guy with a VR headset and a bunch of arrows in the back and the front and the sides. Uh, Walter would be one of my nominees. Ken Brinschneider would be another one of our nominees who did The Void. You guys pushed the envelope and proved that there was a there there. And that we don't give it enough credit and it's important to know how hard it was back then and how hard it is to continue to maintain it the sort of forward trajectory of where we all know this is going so so it, i think you know if we were going to do an award you would be the first winner of that award in my opinion i, I couldn't be more available <laughs> walter i wish that this show were two hours long uh, thank you for being so generous with your time and so uh, insightful in your comments. I, I got a lot out of this conversation. I'm sure our listeners did too. Um, so thank you. And I hope I see you again soon. Uh, I, I get I so much out of this. Well, thank you to all of you. You guys are so kind and, and have been so supportive and insightful. So it was a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Have a all great our listeners, make sure you go watch uh, watch War Games if you've never seen it or rewatch it. Yeah, I it's heard fantastic. about it. Thanks, guys. Right. Have a good weekend, everyone. Cheers.